do not work harder. That's my motto, but that's the end of it. There's no second half of this motto. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Hey Audrey, do you know what season it is? Uh, Some sort of gourd season, if I had to guess. It is infrastructure bill season. The Biden infrastructure bill has passed. It is law. It is the law of the land. We are investing in bridges. We are investing in highways. We are investing in human infrastructure. We're investing in broadband. We are investing in all of the things that make this country run on time, effectively. Just mm, feel so good. So I'm glad we've looped back to infrastructure bits because the gourd bit was getting a bit much. And it's good to know that we're consistent. We have two bits. We yeah, stick with you, them, commit to it. Hit you with one long, long bit. And then and then right when you think you've got it, know it's coming, bam, hit you with the other one. Just pop out of nowhere. Bam, bam. Back and forth. Um, it, that is true. The infrastructure bill has passed. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but... There's a certain former president who is very displeased, especially displeased with Mitch McConnell, called him a <laughs> broken old crow or an old broken crow. Which he is. Let's be, let's be totally fair. That's offensive to crows. So fuck you. No, I, I honestly think uh, an old broken crow or a broken old crow in the Senate would be a step up at this point. Yes, yes. I think it is particularly funny because... Do you remember how many times Trump announced Infrastructure Week during the course of his four-year presidency? Like, it had to at least be like two dozen at some point. It never occurred. It never actually happened. I mean, I, I was too distracted by the racism and the, um, the cruelty to children to really pay attention to infrastructure for those four years. But it's, um, you know, I'm glad we're at this moment in time. Yes. Well, it turns out every time that you would announce Infrastructure Week, there was always a lot of racism to do that got in the way. And so it never actually got done. Turns out if you do less racism, you get more infrastructure. Who would have thought? I mean, I would guess most people would think that. Best case scenario, most people think less racism, more human progress. But not to downplay the very racist history of a lot of American infrastructure, the United States interstate system, explicitly yes. designed to tear through uh, black and brown communities, both in the name of segregation and uh, just like hollowing out where a lot of wealth and um, businesses had been built. So yeah, it is possible to do infrastructure and racism simultaneously. That will not stop America, for sure. But Hopefully, hopefully we've entered a chapter where slightly less racism gives us slightly more infrastructure and that is a net positive for the world. Yeah. I mean, I I was just not uh, prepared to have the depth of conversation required for the intersection of uh, infrastructure and racism at this moment in time. I was really just about to shit talk a children's author, but, <laughs> you know, this is really a both and sort of podcast. So you start this podcast, you better come correct. That's what I always say. Do not. Do not just come in casually and expect to get away without policy talk. That's all I'm saying. I mean, all I'm saying is I don't know that I've ever at 9 p.m. on a Thursday come correct to anything. And if you have, you've not come voluntarily. You would generally prefer to be in bed at that point. That's it's all for a sure. performance. It's all a performance, just like this. But this is, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm pleased to be here. We took a slight hiatus. A whole bunch of things happened in the last couple of weeks. Our child's vaccinated. We got a cat. You spent some time in Kentucky somehow. And suddenly it's podcast night again. Yeah. Suddenly you've got a vaccinated cat kid in Kentucky. Just <laughs> bam. Happens. That's all over with. It is. And got rid of the cat. Got rid of the kid. Got rid of Kentucky. Ready to go. One out of three is not bad <laughs> in my book. <laughs> Well, no, we are back. We did take a hiatus. We did get a bunch of requests for heroes and a whole bunch of new followers over the last two weeks, which goes to show you that if you, it's this is not a work harder scenario. This is a do nothing and and 
good things will come to you. Just manifest. How, how long have I been saying this? Do yes. Do not work harder. That's my motto. Right. That's the end of it. There's no second half of this motto. <laughs> that is the whole motto. Sure. There's definitely not working smarter in this house. No. We are at our our intelligence capacity and it's still not looking good, friends. Yes. Yeah, so for all of the people who requested Celine Dion this week, we are actually not doing the most requested hero. We're not. We're not. We did get a request. I, I just want to be explicit about this for um, Mario Prada of the sort of, everyone knows, not sort of, of the fashion house Prada. Um, and I'm going to be honest. I started the research. I was like, that is a great idea, right? We've done Coco Chanel. The Gucci film is coming out. Having a Prada Meet Your Heroes episode would be so timely. And I started doing the research and it was so hard. And I was just not prepared for the intellectual fortitude required to research someone whose cleanup crew is exceptional. And so I actually ended up doing someone who had already started the research for uh, a couple months ago. Yes. Like I said, the motto, don't work harder. That's the saying. So who do we end up doing instead, Audrey? <laughs> well, so we ended up doing someone whose work I actually really like. Um, I'm going to be honest. James and the Giant Peach was one of my favorite books in elementary school. I loved it. I still love it. And so this week's hero like kind of pained me a little bit. I had to grapple with that. Um, but we've also already done Charles Schultz. And we all know that I slept with the Snoopy doll till I was like 10. So fuck it. Here we are. Anyway, this week's hero is Raul Dahl. What do you know about Raul Dahl? I know his first name is very hard to say. It's, uh, it's Norwegian. So yes. It's, it is hard to say for me. I always want to say rolled, mm -hmm. or, but um, I know that he has made several of the classic children's books of like the late 20th, early 21st century uh, U.S. child experience. So James and Giant Peach, you mentioned, The Witches, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and then, of course, all of the films that were adaptations of those. Uh, what am I forgetting? What the, uh, what's the other big one? Um, I mean, we'll get to them, but Matilda's pretty big. Matilda. That was another one. Yeah. The BFG. Uh, but so I basically know the books mm -hmm. that I was exposed to as a kid, the movies from the books, and nothing about the actual author. I think that's on purpose and probably because you would uh, really hate the author despite loving the books. Although I'm not, I, I think they're really banking on the fact that children cannot separate art from artists <laughs> when it comes to Raul Dahl. But let's get started. Born September 13th, 1916. He's a Virgo. Oh. Did you forget that Virgos existed? You forgot that was a whole, a whole yeah, astrological sign, huh? Yeah. Wait, what segment are we in again? We're in Audrey's Astrology Corner. I forgot the lead in. Yeah, you did. That's all right. That's all right. You know what? We're just we're rolling with it. So Virgos born on September 13th are known for being reserved, sensitive, and artistic. While others seem to come alive in the spotlight, they find little enjoyment with all the eyes on them. Instead, they much rather find themselves in the background. Virgos born on September 13th are style setters in their own way. Their cool, collected attitude marks them as winners. They do not typify the usual Virgo traits of caution and conservatism. They're more likely to walk on the wild side. I will assume that for all the cautious Virgos out there, this particular author is a big fuck you to <laughs> all you hold dear. That's what I'm hearing. I mean, to all the Virgos born on every day except September 13th. Yes. If you're that's born true. on September 13th and that resonates with you, congratulations. You're like, yeah, you're like, fuck the other Virgos. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, it doesn't resonate with Raul Dahl. It's bullshit. This one, I'm calling bullshit on. It's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. It's wrong. So, you Wait, know what? what? Even the stars get it wrong. Even the stars get it wrong sometimes. There's 7 billion people. You think the stars can get all of it right every time? No, it's just a, it's a small galaxy with limited <laughs> capacity, limited resources. They can't get it right every time. To be clear, when you, when you said, do you think the stars can get it right every time? My answer to that was no. Do you, if you were to ask me, do I think the stars get it right most of the time? Again, my answer is no. 
I don't think they do. I but uh, I digress. Uh, tell me more about this uh, star-crossed author. Well, listen. In my industry of bullshit, uh, there's no such thing as a coincidence. So they get it right most of the time. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. My man, Raoul Dahl, born in Cardiff, Wales. That's in Wales somewhere. He was born to Norwegian parents. His dad was a a wealthy ship broker. Do you know what a ship broker is? Yeah, somebody breaks ships. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, he's a middleman between ship owners and charterers who uses uh. ships to transport cargo. So he just takes a little off the top of both sides, basically. Ends up wealthy. He has three sisters, two half-siblings from his father's first marriage, but she died of tuberculosis or something. I don't know. It's the early 19-teens. Women died a lot. Uh, his family spoke Norwegian at home and were like culturally Norwegian in their household. They went to like a Norwegian Lutheran church. This is a very Norwegian family in Wales. When Raoul was three, his older sister died. And then a few weeks later, his father died. And then a few weeks after that, his youngest sister was born. So a lot, you know, like a lot happening for a three-year-old. Yeah. Uh, on net, no new siblings. Thank <laughs> <laughs> God. You do the math, it's just minus one dad. Unlike most of our heroes, though, when his dad died, the family did not end up destitute. Uh, his father left the family the equivalent of about $7 million. So maybe they're better off. Yeah, this is what, if there's anything I've learned from the murder shows you made me watch, mm-hmm. it is that it is generally a bad idea to be worth more dead than alive. Think about this. You're his mom. You're the wife. Your husband's dead. You get $7 million and you don't have to deal with your shit broker husband. <laughs> and you're not going to end up pregnant with more children. Win, win, win. Anyway, dad's dead. Sister's dead. New sister. His mom wants to move back to Norway because obviously she wants to be around people who can help her raise her four young children. I guess three young children at this point. She like sort of goes through the legal proceedings, whatever early 20th century legal proceedings there are for a dead husband in Wales. And they're like, oh, yeah, the only way you get this $7 million is basically if you stay in England and your kids go to English schools. You just pissed off all of our Welsh listeners just now. You, you just casually said that they couldn't leave Wales and then they had to stay in England. I know they're separate. I know they're, I know they're separate. I'm... I'm Both about in the UK. Both I'm about. In the UK. I'm about to clarify. I'm about to clarify. Okay, I just, I just, you know, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that you don't want to make the Welsh mad. And I'm very bad at geography. But and here's she, the thing. Yes, okay. Here's the thing. So the the stipulation was that right they could stay living in in Wales. The family mm-hmm. liked their life in Wales, but they're very wealthy and he wanted them to go to boarding schools in England, like mm. just across the ferry. Is this the dad or the dad like in his will? Yes. Ah, uh, okay. And so basically he was like to get the 7 million dollars, you have to guarantee that my children will be educated in England because he thought that British schools, this is him not me. I'm not saying mm-hmm. this. He thought they were the best in the world. Okay, so they couldn't leave the British Isles then. Essentially. But okay. specifically, he there were like boarding schools and private schools in England that brought his kids to go to. Is, yes, that they eventually ended up going to. Okay, fair enough. So that happened. So his mom is stuck in Wales. He's going to school in England. He's a naturally mischievous child, but he's not like deviant or cruel you know, we have some heroes who are like dicks from their time they're kids. Mm-hmm. How would you describe deviant? I'm very curious. Deviant to me feels like uh, specifically malicious or um, – I mean, he's like – he's he, his, mis, his mischievousness, mischievity, uh-huh. him being mischievous was semi-deviant. So like here's an example of what he did. He and his friends hated this candy store owner. She was apparently very terrible or like grumpy, according to, I don't know, seven-year-olds. So they put a dead mouse in one of the candy jars. Like that's what he did. Mm, but he it. wasn't like bullying other kids. He wasn't like taunting other kids. He was apparently just like a normal, fine, relatively 
mediocre child. Yeah, dead mouse and kind of funny. I mean, like, not super creative, but, you know, solid. But the the boarding schools that he went to were sort of Lord of the Flies-esque. So he actually talked about the trauma of them in his memoirs later. He talked about how the corporal corporal punishment and the hazing at these places were really severe. How, like, the headmaster would beat children. They would cane them. They would encourage like the head students, like the head boy, to beat the other kids and then just like watch it. And he just could not understand how people could be so cruel to each other. Pretty sure it's Protestantism, right? Like that's the whole deal? Maybe. I don't know. I, yeah. Maybe it's a British thing. Who knows? Sure. Goes to England. Kids whooping up on each other. Uh, casual cruelty. Kind of a deviant. And he did okay in school. He was never seen as this, like, particularly talented student. Uh, It's noted that he was not a particularly talented writer. One of his English teachers wrote on one of his report cards, quote, I have never met anybody who so persistently writes words meaning the exact opposite of what is intended. Fun fact. I took a philosophy course that was all about the interpretational theory that Descartes, famous for writing the words, I think, therefore I am, or cogito ergo sum, uh, how he actually wrote them in Latin, uh, was actually writing the opposite of what he thought because he didn't feel like he could write his actual theories for fear of persecution from this church. Because after you see what they do to like Galileo and Copernicus, you're like, oh, no, no thanks. So he thought that the, I think therefore I am, rather than being like this uh, irrefutable proof of human consciousness as the base layer of epistemology, was instead ironic and just being like, can can you believe this bullshit? But uh, apparently had that in common with Roald Dahl, if it's true. Who knows? Yeah, I think Ralph Dole was just kind of a mediocre student. I don't think this is a <laughs> philosophical um, exercise in any by any stretch of the imagination. He's just doing it for shits and giggles. Okay, got it. Fair enough. No, I think he's just a mediocre student. Nothing exceptional. He graduates high school. His mom is like, hey, by the way, I don't know if you know this, we're very rich. Wait, was this news to him? It's mostly like, even though you're kind of a shitty student... We have enough money that I could buy you a spot at Oxford or Cambridge. Would you like one? And he was like, no, actually, the thing I want to do is be an explorer. Oh, that's bullshit. I would like to go to Africa or China. Like, that's literally what he said. He was like, no, I want to join some sort of profession, organization, government where they will send me to Africa or China. That's what what I would like to do. Some real Marco Polo bullshit. Got a ship merchant dad who's trying to kids going off to china no yeah a lot of uh imperialism in the blood runs runs deep he actually does end up being an explorer and he ends up on an expedition any guesses where he ends up i'm gonna say not china america newfoundland oh so not at all (laughs) not at all uh what i was expecting so he goes to newfoundland he's on this expedition for a couple months, I don't know, exploring this, exploring that. He ends up working for this oil company, going to Tanzania for a few years. And he's there in 1939 when the war breaks out. At this point, he's like 23. So he joins the Royal Air Force. He ends up training as a fighter pilot in Kenya. Um, And he's like flying planes or whatever. And he's serving in the Mediterranean for some bit. I don't know why. I've okay. seen the crown, though, and I know Prince William, or uh, Prince Philip did the same. So it's probably yeah. like if you're rich in English and they don't actually want you to die in the war, you're stationed in the Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah, just in case, you know, the island of Crete decides to just start some shit. You're, you're ready. So he's flying around. He's doing something. And he ends up crash landing in Egypt. <laughs> He gets very, very hurt, like very hurt, like his skull is crushed in. He breaks his back. His hips are broken. Legs don't work, sort of hurt. Uh, that's 
Hurt is not the term I would use for legs don't work anymore. I mean, in my notes, I wrote, quote, he's really fucked up for a while. That, seem, that seems to capture the spirit a little bit better, I believe. <laughs> but I'm trying to I'm trying to ease back into recording a podcast and being in in um, good company. What's like, um, what's the phrase? Something society? Noble society? Polite society. <laughs> polite. I'm doing my best to be in polite society right now. Anyway, he's really fucked up for a while. He's in the hospital. His leg's broken. It's like, his legs are not broken. His legs are broken. By 1941, so a year, two years later, he's rehabilitated. They take a look at him, and they're like, hey, man, you're good to go. And this war is getting worse. So get back in that plane. And he's like, you know what? Great. Absolutely. I would love to do that. I am ready to fly these planes again. He's on board. Unfortunately, in 1941, if you smash your skull in and then don't get adequate medical treatment for like two years, things don't go great. He starts getting severe headaches and blacking out. There's a a couple different things that on a plane (laughs) you really want to avoid. One of them is the ground. And the other one is blacking out because it tends to lead to the ground pretty quickly thereafter. Right, exactly. So at this point, the Air Force is like... We really appreciate your service. <laughs> nice try, buddy, but don't think it's going to work out. It, yeah, it's not. It's it's not. It's not us. It's you. Mm-hmm. Please go home to Britain. You are being. It's called invalidated. So it's not like discharged. There's no like. I guess in the British Army, it's not like honorarily discharged or dishonorably discharged. It's just he's invalidated. So basically, they're like, this guy got real fucked up, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we really appreciate what he did for us. Okay, but yeah, he has to term- go home. There's the term invalid was somebody, yes. Yes. it was a term for somebody who was sick or like in, incapacitated. So yes. invalidated seems reasonable, I guess. I wrote invalidated, but that could There's be a probably typo. actually the right, no, invalidated is probably the right word. Invalidated could actually be the right word. I, I don't know because I did not, I, I don't pay attention to details like that when reading. I just, that looks like the word I thought it would be and I typed it down. So he's back home in Britain, and they're like, hey, man, you know about flying, and the war's still going on. You are now, no thanks to the fact that you're very rich, an assistant air attache at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. That sounds fancy. Yeah, I don't... What's an what's an attache? I think it's like a very... So one, it's a briefcase. Right, 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 right. But I think because a briefcase like handles your papers, I think a person who has a job of attache is somebody who is like your uh, very fancy diplomatic assistant okay. type thing. Okay. Hold on. Wait. Do you want me to Google this real fast? Um, no, I had the opportunity to Google it, but I left it in here because I thought this banter would be funnier. So don't worry about it. So he gets to D.C., He's like hanging out with these folks. He's doing this work. And he is, quote unquote, unimpressed by everything about the job, except for one thing. And that is the fact that the U.S. was not rationing food like the Brits were. He loved it. Could not believe that in America you could still eat sugar, drink booze, eat fatty foods. Couldn't get enough. Is he, is he switching sides? Is he switching sides in the middle of the war? I mean, the British and the American are on the same, and America are on the same side, right? No, is he switching sides from the non-sugar side of the Allies to the sugar side of the Allies? Oh, That's he, the is, question. he is. Yes, yes. So he gets to America. He's like, "Hey, guess what? Everybody here sucks. This work sucks. But have you heard about sugar?" So he's working as an attaché again, <laughs> whatever the fuck that is, and he's approached by a friend, and this friend says, "Hey." Uh, I want to write your story for the Saturday Morning Post. This friend says, send me some notes about being a pilot and about how you were shot down. Side note, he was not shot down, but he did not correct him. Seems like he passed out. But this guy's like, hey, I'll rework your, you know, whatever notes you send me into a story for the Post and it'll be fantastical. Everybody will be like, you're a hero. This person's in America. And he sends it to the writer and he's like, hey, here are my notes. And the writer's like, hey, this is actually very good. I'm not going to make any edits. I'm just going to submit it to the paper. And the paper's like, this is a fantastic piece of writing. We are just going to publish it as is. And so to situate ourselves, this is August 1942. Roald is 26. He has his first piece of writing published. It's in the Saturday Morning Post. That's like a big deal for your first piece of writing. Yeah. And it is this 
full entire embellishment about his entire experience as an Air Force pilot. Embellishment. Yeah, nice way to say bullshit. It's just total bullshit. Yes. But no one corrects him. Who could correct him? He literally crashed his own plane like in the Egyptian desert. Yeah, it's it's a great way to kick off your writing career. Just lie. Yeah, lie. <laughs> there's, there's actually been a lot of authors who have done that to, to great accolade for many years. He's one of the original. So he does this. He gets a lot of publicity for this. The British army is like, hey, we didn't actually realize that this guy was such a big deal. Cool story. <laughs> they end up promoting him to be a flight no lieutenant. No way. Yes. They're like, oh, my God, this guy got shot down. We didn't even realize it. He survived. His skull got bashed in. He's blacking out. And now he's in the U.S. doing work on our behalf. Let's promote this motherfucker. I don't know the mechanics of it. He did not have to fly, but he was a flight lieutenant. He's still in the U.S. Because of this, like, promotion, he ends up working alongside very, very well-known British officers. People like Ian Fleming. Do you know who Ian Fleming is? Yeah, he wrote James Bond, like, in the original books. He wrote James Bond. Didn't just, like, write James Bond out of nowhere. He, like, wrote James Bond... From his experience. And his experience was working in espionage for MI6. And so somehow, Raoul Dahl, this motherfucker, gets a front row seat to a whole bunch of espionage. And he ends up becoming a spy for the British Army. Oh, wait. It's just because of his bullshit story? Yes. So he is sending intel directly to Winston Churchill. No way. Keep in mind, it's all of these embellishments <laughs> of his own story. And later, in, even in his reports, and later proven to be a whole bunch of embellishments in his reports to Winston Churchill that influenced World War II. But in his own memoir, Raoul Dahl said, quote, My job was to try to help Winston to get on with FDR and tell Winston what was in that old boy's mind. It's just wild. Like, just the fact that, like, his fiction writing skills got him to fake enough expertise to get in the position where his fiction writing skills could then like actually affect the course of the war in some way that's it's just it wild. Is wild so yeah he goes from crashing his plane breaking his back to being an attache to lying to the saturday morning post to becoming a spy for the british army he's like you know still in the u.s he's recruited to be part of mi6 it's later comes it later comes out that his um you know, I don't know, mission was, quote, he was originally tasked with planting pro-British and anti-Nazi stories in the American press in the hopes of rallying a reluctant United States to join World War II. The spy network worked after the bombing of Pearl Harbor to counter the significant isolationist sentiment that still remained in the country and ensure the United States remained in the fight. That's a huge impact and risk, especially given like where he was at the time. Yeah, it's not a not uh, noble cause. It's just where this man is just like, I'm. you want a hero? I'll give you a hero. And he lies about his entire biography leading up to this point. The The thing that like makes this possible for Raoul Dahl is the fact that he is actually very good at socializing. And I think that is what makes a very good spy mm. in general, right? You have to be able to like blend in. You have to be able to, I don't know, schmooze the right people. But there's this very specific sort of British charm that he has that, I don't know, a certain amount of wealth and crashing planes affords. But he ends up becoming a tennis mm -hmm. partner with Vice President Henry Wallace. And this is where he gets all of his intel. He's a tennis partner with a vice president? He ends up playing a bunch of tennis as the as like a doubles partner with Henry Wallace. And he ends up finding out things like the United States was planning to, quote unquote, emancipate a large part of the British Empire after the after the conclusion of World War Two. And uh, that the U.S. was about ready to begin their efforts to land a man on the moon. And he sends all the shit straight back to Winston Churchill. Yeah, that was news to the Brits. The whole, like, emancipate the British Empire thing? You know, I think they were operating in good faith during a time when Nazis were trying to take over the rest of the world. They were like, you know what? Our allies are, are not going to do anything to us. Well, turns out they were, they were coming for you. At the same time that all of this is happening, 
The other thing that is taking up a whole bunch of Raul Dahl's time is um, sex with wealthy women. Mm, this is actually same. one of the most endearing parts of his story, that he just shacks up with a whole bunch of wealthy American women, takes them for what they're worth, and then, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, okay, okay. you know, consensual sexual relations or relationships between adults. I'm I'm not trying to judge it, except for the fact that he was also incredibly misogynistic and cruel to these women right after he got done sleeping with them. One of his friends said, quote, when they fell in love with him, as a lot did, I don't think he was nice to them. <laughs> he talks about them as if they were disposable, like, hey, I'm I'm sorry that I'm sleepy at work on Monday. This broad on Fifth Avenue you know, I slept with her all weekend and she won't stop bugging me. <laughs> like shit like that. So very big got problems it, it. for okay. Raul Dahl. He's making up bullshit about his war hero. Being a spy and, and having all the sex. Having right. all the sex. So he's like the poor man's James Bond, honestly, if, if we're getting down to it. He does this till the war ends, spying, sexing, and then he ends up going back to the United Kingdom. A few years later, it's nineteen fifty-three. He meets and marries this award-winning actress named Patricia Neal. And he was kind of a sleazeball before this, pretending to be more than who he is. But then he marries Patricia Neal. And honestly, this is where it feels like his story takes a turn. This is, to me, where it feels like the cruelty, like the deliberate awfulness of the Raul Dahl legacy really starts to pick up. By the late 50s, he's still working in the military. He's writing in his spare time. You know, he's like, begins writing in earnest. He's like, hey, that Saturday Morning Post really did wonders for me. I got all these other short stories published. At one point, Walt Disney was like, hey, I like your short story. Can you write a short story for me to animate? And he does. And so he's like, got these connections. He's got this wealth. He's writing these little bits. Wait, what's his Disney animated story? Do you know? Yeah, it's called The Gremlins. Mm, yeah, I'm assuming it's not the same one as the 80s movie. There's really no telling when it comes to Raoul Dahl. I don't know. He... Walt Disney was like, hey, I like your story, The Gremlins. Can Could we put it to animation? I didn't look it up. That's what it is. You can go find it. I think it was published in like 1943 or something like that. But like a decade later, he's married. He's writing. He's got all of these connections, political, social. Throughout the late 50s and 60s, Raoul Dahl and his wife are doing what married couples do, and they end up with five children. And throughout this time, they also experience a series of horrible tragedies. So the first of which is after leaving an actual breakfast at Tiffany's. Is after leaving an actual breakfast at Tiffany's. No. They're with their three children and their four-month-old baby is in a stroller. The stroller is struck by a taxi. Yikes. Yeah, the child survives, but he does suffer significant traumatic brain injuries. This eventually prompts Raoul Dahl to work with scientists in the same way that um, uh, Charles Lindbergh worked with scientists to create, you know, like medical breakthroughs. Wealthy people with connections are like, hey, this issue affects me personally. I want to fix it. Have some money. He ends up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He ends up like contributing significantly to causes of or like research around traumatic brain injury. But um, his child suffers this horrible TBI. And then just a few months later, his daughter dies from complications of measles. This loss apparently devastates Dahl. I mean, rightfully so, right? Like, imagine you're in a period of time. If you think back to his childhood, right? Dad dies or sister dies, dad dies, new baby. And then his son is injured, his child dies. And then his wife, who is pregnant with their fifth child, has a series of strokes. Oh, no. Yikes. I know. I know. And so all of this is happening all at once. Right. And instead of like seeking out any sort of way to manage his grief, what he does is just become incredibly verbally abusive. 
he tries at one point to find like a spiritual guide. So he goes to this bishop, I don't know, in a Lutheran church. He's Lutheran, grew up Norwegian Lutheran. And he goes and he's like, hey, listen, I'm really struggling. You know, my daughter died. Help me out. And this and this bishop was like, yeah, your daughter is definitely in heaven. And Raoul Dahl was like, okay, can you give me sort of any – can you give me any sort of assurance that the rest of us will see her there in the future? Like myself, our children. What about her like dog? She's, I'm sure like her dog is sad that she's dead. What about Rowley? Seems reasonable. Yes. And this bishop was like, oh, absolutely not. Dogs do not go to people heaven. Leave that church right away. Yes. And so this is actually the most redeeming part of Ralph Dahl's story. He said that he immediately stopped believing in Christianity. <laughs> and he said, quote, I wanted to ask him how he could be so absolutely sure that other creatures did not get the same special treatment as us. I sat there wondering if this great and famous churchman really knew what he was talking about and whether he knew anything at all about God or heaven. Yes. And if he didn't, then who in the world did? Yes. Like, what? where's the point where he's like, oh, yeah, here's written scripture where it says, fuck your dogs. They're not going to heaven. <laughs> no, nowhere. Never says that. Never says I that. I know. I mean, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before. I feel like I've mentioned it a lot in my personal life. I, it might have come up here about my own experience when I stopped believing in God or like a, a Christian religion. Have we talked about this yet? I don't think on the podcast we talked about it now. Sure. So when I was like 11 or so, I was talking to to my minister, the Methodist minister of, that, of the church that my family went to. And I was like, hey, uh, excuse me, why are there no dinosaurs in the Bible? And she didn't have an answer for me. And I feel like that was the moment where I was like, okay, so I'm suspicious. And uh, I got to give it to Ralph Dahl. He was like, listen, if my fucking dog doesn't get into heaven, God's not real. Yes. And and to the point, like, it is both the fact that, like, Ralph Dahl's guy was like, oh, yeah, no, dogs aren't in heaven. When, how would you know that? You would not know that. There's none. <laughs> yeah. And also, how would you know? with dinosaurs... If God wrote a book about how the world was created, how would you not know about dinosaurs? Like, dinosaurs were, were here for a lot longer than we have. We just showed up. Dinosaurs were here for a while. Like, if you write the history of creatures on Earth, like, it was mostly things that don't have brains up until the point where creatures with brains show up. Then it's mostly dinosaurs. And then, like, they get a stroke of bad luck. And then, like, we pop in and, like, swoop in and take over at the last second. Like, it is, it is mostly a dinosaur planet still. Still. On average. Absolutely. Absolutely. On average. Anyway, so Raul Dahl is like, fuck Jesus. And then his wife has a stroke. And this really sends him into a tailspin. Well, you know why? Because he was like, I'm done with Christianity. Jesus is like, that's fucking rude is what it is. And then, bam, stroke for your wife. It's just, that's... <laughs> you're like you're like 35-year-old wife, this Oscar award-winning wife who has like three kids at home. She has this stroke while she's pregnant. She ends up delivering their fifth child. Child's fine. But, you know, it's, I don't know, 1962, 63, 64-ish. There's not like a good sort of understanding about what a stroke is in the medical community. There's really not any sort of rehabilitation program. And Raoul Dahl is like, okay, there's no rehabilitation protocol. I'm going to invent my own. And what I'm going to do is be fully and entirely emotionally withholding and physically punitive until my wife regains all of her strength, at which point... I'll give her what she wants. And I'm not kidding when I say that. That sounds like a hyperbole. It does. But but essentially, he wrote down and she wrote down in her memoir, they both document the fact that one of the ways that he was going to help her recover was that he was, one, never going to give her anything she asked for until she could fully articulate the word properly. So like if she needed water after having a stroke until she could say, I need water, he was not going to give her water. That's how she eventually uh, died of dehydration. He also then forced her to engage in in physical therapy, of which he was not an expert, every single day for hours to the extent that she later documented that it felt like he was torturing her. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, she ends up recovering to an astonishing degree. So much so that medical professionals start to integrate some of his quote-unquote therapies 
into their stroke recovery protocols. I mean, that's wild. It's just like his own just like hard-headedness. The fact that like stroke therapy today is Roald Dahl being like, I'm an asshole and my wife had a stroke. We don't know what it is, but you're going to get fucking better. I'm not giving you water. And then now we're like, the state of the research is such that uh, you got to ask for water. I mean, it feels exactly the same way that he ended up as a spy where he was like, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing, but I'm just going to say that I'm right. The hubris of it. Mm -hmm. He just like makes it up and everybody's like, you're a rich white man from England. So absolutely, this is accurate. Yeah. The secret is the audacity. The real spirit behind this, though, and I'm not kidding when I say this, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but the gist of it and and both Raoul and Patricia agree. The gist of it was that he couldn't afford for her to not get better. Like he could not have a wife who was like not taking care of his children and not doing his housework. He essentially was like, I will make you better or I will leave you. This is not a love thing. This is not a care about you thing. This is not a I need you to get better. This is like, we have four small children. I don't want to take care of them. You are worthless to me unless you can. I mean, that's a less romantic way to put it for sure. Yeah, it's around this time that she starts calling him Ralph the Rotten, both to his face and behind his back, okay. and to basically everyone who great, will listen. Great. As long as it's to his face as well, I, I can respect that. I can respect that for sure. Yeah, it's also around the same time that Ralph starts cheating on her unapologetically and profusely and sort of all over the place all the time. I'm getting the vague sense that their relationship is deteriorating. So how long do you think this marriage <laughs> lasts? Uh, after the stroke recovery? Yeah. I mean, sounds like we're in the final throws a couple of years, Max. How long would you say married to me if I did this to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's talk decades. (laughs) How many decades would you say married to me (laughs) if, one, I married you? Uh Uh-huh. We had a bunch of children. It was very clear from, I don't know, within the first eight to 10 years that I don't like you. And you start calling me Elliot the Rotten to my face and to all of my friends' faces. And then, and then you start sleeping with a whole bunch of people. Okay. Uh, let's say two decades? Three. Three so decades. So three decades. We'll got get it, to the it. deterioration of their marriage at some point, but it doesn't really matter. This is not a spoiler. They end up divorcing, but not until they've spent 30 years doing this bullshit with each other. Wow. That is, that is commitment. It's at this point the 1960s, 1970s. He's a wellish known author. He's established. For some context, I'm going to give you a timeline of his most famous works. 1961, James and the Giant Peach. 1964, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 68, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, you're right. Fantastic Mr. Fox too. I missed that one at the beginning. I forgot what that was his. There's a period from like 1968 to 1980 where he writes a bunch of lesser well-known works and a bunch of short stories, but his his uh, celebrity is still rising. Okay. 1980, The Twits. 82, The BFG. 83, The Witches. 88, Matilda. Mm-hmm. Right? Wait, Matilda he, was written in 88? I know. Can you believe that? Yeah. So I... I'm going to date myself here. I was born before that, and it was just always a movie I remembered. It's wild to think that it was written before I was, like, or sorry, it was written after I was born and was a movie before I realized. Yeah, it was a movie only like six or seven years later, right? So contextually, he wrote from essentially 1943 until 1991. And so this makes you think, right? Like this famous author, we all know him. Wow. This guy pumping it out. Great agent, great publisher, his editing house, his publishing house must love him, right? Mm-hmm. No, they hated him. What? They hated him so much. They hated him to the point where they were like, this multi-million dollar author, this cash cow of a man is so not worth working with. There's an or an article called... When Raoul Dahl's editor decided he was too much of a prick to publish. (laughs) And there's an excerpt from Robert Gottlieb, who was was a bigwig at his publishing house. He writes his memoir. In Robert Gottlieb's memoir, there's an excerpt about Raoul Dahl's character. And he says, quote, His behavior to the staff was so demanding and rude that no one wanted to work with him. And in any case, there was no one there who elevated enough for him to deign to deal with. Raoul was a tremendous charmer, 
but his behavior grew more and more erratic and churlish. Secretaries were treated like servants. Tantrums were thrown both in person and in letters. And when Bob Bernstein, as head of Random House, didn't accede to his immoderate and provocative financial demands, we sensed anti-Semitic undertones in his angry response. Okay, so I was I was with you with the churlish letter tantrums, but the anti-Semitic undertones is a, a bit too far. Okay, so we're going to get there, but let's continue here and let's 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 stay with Robert Gottlieb for a second. He also details in his memoir this anecdote, this moment when Raoul Dahl asks the publishing house to have someone "quote unquote" competent and ravishing. <laughs> what? Yeah. Can can she do the job and be pretty? Do, hand deliver pencils, a specific type no. of pencils. Can can someone with nice tits bring me pencils? Is basically what he's saying. Yep, yep. The publishing house was like, "This is a joke, right?" And so they like didn't do it. They didn't send anyone competent and or ravishing to deliver pencils. They were just like, "He's got to be kidding. He can go to the corner store and buy pencils." Get your own fucking pencils. Come on, man. Yes. When this doesn't happen. Raldal throws a fit, goes down to the publishing house, is so unkind, literally throws a fit, writes letters, and is like, how dare you treat me like this? After this happens, Robert Gottlieb wrote directly to Raldal, and he says, quote, in brief and as unemotionally as I can state it, since the time when you decided that Bob Bernstein, I, and the rest of us had dealt badly with you over your contract, you have behaved to us in a way I can honestly say is unmatched in my experience for overbearingness and utter lack of civility. I've worked hard for you editorially, but had already decided to stop doing so. Indeed, you've managed to make the entire experience of publishing you unappealing for all of us. Counterproductive behavior, I would have thought. To be perfectly clear, let me reverse your threat. Unless you start acting civilly to us, there is no possibility of our agreeing to continue to publish you. And this is all prompted because they he just made a request to hire, like, the pencil tits lady? Yeah. And then when it didn't happen, he was like, how dare you treat me like this? I'm your best author. I'm going to leave. When my contract's up, you, you know, I'll go to a different publishing house. And they were like, Good Bye. fucking luck. Yeah. Take yes. It. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, this threat ends up sort of reforming Ralph Dahl. He shuts his fucking mouth for a bit. His contract's renewed, but the the relationship is irreparable. Yeah, just like the fact that like this is one of the precipitating factors for him. Like, come on, man. So all of this is happening at the same time as sort of these undertones in his writing and his personality or what were previously undertones are starting to be called out in the media and by people close to him. And these things are the fact that Raoul Dahl is both racist and incredibly anti-Semitic. At this point, there have been tons of pieces written about the racist symbolism in his writing. An example of this is like the description and the backstory, the origin story of the Oompa Loompas and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We read this book to our child yes. like a year ago. And as, as you read it, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he talks about essentially or describes Oompa Loompas as... Uh, people or like creatures, savages of low intelligence from Africa. He describes them as having dark skin. He describes it just like very racist undertones to the role, the character, the symbolism of the Oompa Loompa. I'd forgotten this chapter and it sounds much more like racist overtones at this point as opposed to undertones. Like that's pretty clear. Yes, yes. It People think of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when they think of Oompa Loompas, again, pro who, like super problematic there also, but they think of like green hair, orange skin. It was purple like, skin, right? Or no, it was orange, right? You're right. Yeah. The purple clothes. Clown-esque costumes. But in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he they're essentially like very small people, miniature-sized people with dark skin of low intellect who are – who like fight over food, who are – like all of these descriptors that he uses to imply what he thinks about black people. Yeah, like explicitly from Africa in this story. Yes. That's they very wear, racist. They yes. wear like loincloths. They're unclothed. Like it's all, it's it's super problematic. Another thing that comes up time and time again – are examples of anti-Semitism in his writing. 
And <laughs> the same sort of way you can deconstruct racism, you could do the same for anti-Semitic symbolism in his works. Or you could actually just like read what Raul Dahl has to say about Jewish people himself. For example, he says, quote, there's a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. I mean, there's always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason. Stinker? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways you can describe Hitler. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Failed artist. Incel. Incel. Yes. Um, Gamergate wannabe. But to say that he was a stinker does not really capture the uh, spirit of the man. It doesn't. It doesn't. No. And examples of Raoul Dahl's real-life anti-Semitism were so abundant and well-documented that in 2020, his family actually issued an apology on the official Raoul Dahl website saying like, hey, we're sorry he was so racist and such an anti-Semite. Some people in the Jewish community were like, okay, thank you. We appreciate it. But most were like, hey, uh, he died like 30 years ago. Y'all could have said this at any point between then and now. Mm -hmm. And it's not uh, – it's not – it has not gone unnoticed that you have made tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in the interim between his death and now before you like uh, highlighted the fact that he sucks. So regardless of the sincerity, I think it's still important here to note that his anti-Semitism his anti-Semitism was so rampant that it required a posthumous apology from his, like, grandchildren. Yeah. And a weak one, uh, way after the fact. But they felt like they couldn't even get away with just, like, they, they had to give something. They had to, they had to have at least something because it was so blatant and disgusting. Yes. There's one other piece of his work that's been called out pretty persistently or consistently, and that is... Uh, the persistent themes of fat phobia and misogyny, right? So, like, we already know his he hated his wife. He cheated on her. He degraded women. Seems like he really only cared about himself. But if you look at a lot of his writing, you'll also notice that a, a favorite theme of his villains are, like, fat women that he hates. There's an article from 1999 by Michelle Landsberg where she analyzes – these issues, and she states, quote, throughout his work, evil, domineering, smelly, fat, ugly women are his favorite villains. And so if you think about some of his most famous works, right, like you can see all of this is true. So there are the aunts in James and the Giant Peach. There's like the thin, witchy, mean one, and then the like fat, abusive one. Mm -hmm. There's Miss Trunchbull mm -hmm. from Matilda. Very fat. Yeah, that's like uh, – Something he goes into great detail about highlighting. It's very uncomfortable. There are – and I, I've actually never read this, so I can't speak to this personally. But in the research, it, it highlights the fact, fact that the witches are portrayed in such a terrible light um, as, you know, specifically about them being female, specifically about what they – like their appearance – uh, so all of this comes up and we know that his misogyny has not served him well personally. And, you know, he's writing, he's getting more famous. By the time all of this is published, it's, you know, the 80s, 1983, like I mentioned, after 30 mm -hmm. years of marriage. Yep. The last 11 of which, Raul Dahl was having an affair with a woman named Felicity. Patricia knew about this for a long time, but finally, after 30 years of being abused, hating her husband, being hated by her husband, realizing he's an anti-Semite, he's racist, he's misogynist, she divorces him. Almost immediately, he marries Felicity. A few years later, Patricia writes her own memoir about what it was like being married to Raul Dahl, and she was like, hey, here are the admirable things about him. Admirable things about him. He's very determined. He's creative. He's got a good work ethic. He gets what he wants. Here are the things that are bad about him. He was born into wealth, so he always gets what he wants. He's politically connected, so he always gets what he wants. Mm -hmm. He's socially connected, so he always gets what he wants. He's a man and abusive, so he always gets what he wants. She basically was like, he absolutely has never been told no, and if he gets told no, he becomes abusive and terrible. They get divorced. Raul immediately marries Felicity. 
A few years later, he's in his late 60s, he's offered an appointment to the officer of the Order of the British Empire. I guess that's a good thing. I don't know. He says, no, thank you. Can I interest you in knighting me instead? Wait, (laughs) what? That's a bold move right there. Yeah, he's like, no, I, I actually don't want to be an officer. I would like knighthood instead. And the queen was like, you've done nothing to deserve knighthood. And he was like, I've written a lot of books that make British people look good. And she was like, no, you've written children's books, and a lot of them are highly offensive. And he was like, okay, then it's knighthood or nothing. And she was like, it's nothing. So (laughs) There you go. He gets told no. He does not become a knight. It's just as well, because within a couple years, at the age of 74, he dies. He has a blood cancer, gets an infection. It's curtains. He's 74. And his legacy after that, for the most part, is everything you and I have known about him up to this point, which is what he has written, his work product, not like who he is as a person, right? Yeah. Very great cleanup crew. His daughter, Olivia, actually has a daughter, Sophia, who becomes a well-known model. They stay in the sort of British aristocracy. They have a ton of money, a ton of cleanup crew efforts. And everybody works to sanitize his indiscretions and highlight his charity work and his writing. And I just want to point out for a second that you can contribute to a lot of charities, produce good work, and still be a horrible person. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is where we are right now. So for his misogyny, his cruelty to his wife, his anti-Semitism, his racism, his professional arrogance, and his general meanness to the people in his life, Raoul Dahl is not my hero. Yeah, um, kind of hits the highlights of childhood heroes. Uh, if you had a childhood hero and you have a special place in your heart for their work, there's a good chance that they were a racist misogynist and just general dick bag. And uh, Mr. Doll delivers. Really does. He does. I had to cut out a whole lot. This episode is already very long, even though I kept saying, this is a quick episode. It's only 2,000 words. It's not. It, it's, you know what? It's only 2,000 words, but it's meaty. It's like a, it's like a beefy 2,000 words. Yes, yes. Uh, it, just the fact that he is such a bullshitter, like only like conned his way into this in the first place only stayed there because he just like kept bullshitting and then was absolutely just like a huge dick about it at every opportunity in addition to all the racism in addition to the general misogyny like just a terrible like there's there's no redeeming qualities here except for the work which again hard to separate yeah, especially because a lot of the work has so much of himself put into it, right? So James and the Giant Peach is great until you go back and analyze it with from a feminist perspective and you're like, oh, yeah, all of the female bugs are like worker bugs and all the male bugs are like, oh, women suck. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I actually haven't gone back and read in a while. I'm just making assumptions here, speculating wildly. But I would guess if you went and looked, there would be similar themes throughout. And it's hard because as fantasy, as fiction, his work is so enthralling for the childhood imagination. And also just seems that he didn't really have the emotional intelligence beyond that sort of childhood fantasy of getting everything you want. Yeah, it's true. I I will also say that after uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, there were sequels that he wrote. There were three. There three, were three. We read them. Yeah. And I will say, the other two really sucked. They were not <laughs> very do. good. They were terrible. Really they're, poorly written. They're not good. Like, literally, and... literally, just for all of you, I'm going to spare you uh, some of the details. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory number two involves uh, Willy Wonka and Charlie and Grandpa and all the aunts and uncles in a spaceship in a space battle with the president. No, so first it's actually a glass elevator that becomes a spaceship. It gets launched into space. And then they get sort of like absorbed into a rocket 
And then they have like a direct line to the president no, no, the who pres- helps them battle I'm, the aliens. No, I'm pretty sure the president to start with, though, is only talking to the other opposing American spaceship. And then they're going to have a space battle. And eventually they team Something up like against that. the aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just bullshit. It's terrible. It's not good at all. So they're not, they're not all hits. They're not all hits. That's for sure. They're not all hits. There are some. There are some hits. There are a lot of misses, just like with every artist. It's just... Um, I think the episodes we do where any sort of childhood whimsy is involved is – I feel a reluctance to do it because childhood is one of those times where whimsy and pretending things aren't real and you can look past things. Uh, it's such a magical time. Mm-hmm. But also the work influences the way we see the world. And if the writing and the work that we love is full of misogyny and – racism and anti-Semitism, even if it's not explicit to the child's mind, it certainly shapes a specific narrative. And so I don't know that we gotta we we have to at least be aware of it as we are introducing this work to our children. And again, like I'm not saying that his work isn't interesting and fun and quirky. We've read a number of his books to our own child. We've enjoyed them ourselves in the same way like our kid has watched Disney movies and Walt Disney sucks. It's just important to be aware. It's important to meet your heroes, if you will. If you will. And if our dear listeners would love to have the scales lifted from their eyes, to have the innocence stripped from those childhood memories over the coming days, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at meetyourheroespodcast.com. Yep, and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.